Um, So far in our study, we've seen God lead his people into the promised land, extend mercy to the least of these through Rahab, and begin to execute his judgment over evil. This week, we'll see God extend grace to the unworthy, the miracle of salvation, and what a Christian life looks like once God has saved you. So have you ever made yourself appear sick when you were a kid to get out of going to school? Maybe you had a test you didn't study for, or it was mile run day in PE. (laughs) So you messed your hair up, you pinched your cheeks, you got really snuggled down in the covers and you didn't get up, and your mom came in and she asked what was wrong and you kept your eyes really droopy and you act a little delirious and you're like, I don't feel good. And so, you know, it's the old days back then, so they come in with the thermometer that you hold under your tongue, so you were prepared ahead of time with a cup of warm water, and when your mom walked out to finish getting ready for work, you stuck that bad boy in the water, and you were guaranteed an elevated temp, and you got to stay home. I did this my senior year of high school. Uh, I didn't have an English paper that uh, was finished, so I used a couple of these techniques, and I uh, finished my paper while everyone was working. Sorry, my mom's here today. So, <laughs> sorry, mom. <laughs> I got an A, if so it makes you feel better. <laughs> but kids will go to great lengths to deceive their parents when they're desperate, right? And this week in chapter 9, uh, we open up and we see a group of people in desperation. So the kings of Canaan are all teaming up together to fight against Israel except the inhabitants of Gibeon. And last week, we left off with Joshua, who, just like Moses before him, was up on a mountaintop reading the law over the land of Canaan. And this wasn't just like a refresher for the people of Israel. This was a statement from God over the land of Canaan. It would be like someone from a foreign country coming and reading their constitution over the United States. This was a big deal, and the kings were not just uniting to fight against Israel, they were uniting to fight against God. We read in the first first two verses of Psalm 2 to help give us clarity that said, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his united. If we read just a few verses down in verse 4, it says, He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So God was not afraid of the Canaanites. The Gibeonites, however, come up with their own plan. Chapter 9, verse 4, describes the Gibeonites as cunning. Now, that word might perk up your ears depending on what version of the Bible you're reading because in Genesis 3, the serpent is also described as cunning when he deceives Eve. Now you may ask yourself, why do they need to go to such lengths to appear as though they're from a faraway land? Well, I think Before we answer that, we need to look more into why God was declaring war on Canaan. So the people living in the land of Canaan were incredibly corrupt, especially regarding sex and child sacrifice. 
If you want to learn more about the saucy details, you can open up Leviticus chapter 18, which reveals all the ways that the Canaanites undressed each other's nakedness and burned their children to satisfy their god, Molech. God didn't want the wickedness of the Canaanites influencing his people. This was not about creating room for God's chosen people in the land of Canaan. This was God waging war on evil. They were a uniquely sinful people. And God was the commander-in-chief. And the Israelites were the instrument that he was using to enact judgment on that evil in Canaan. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1 and 2 say, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering, Canaan, to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you to defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, and you shall show no mercy to them. Later in Deuteronomy, when discussing laws of warfare, Israel is told by God that they are to make peace with people from distant countries. So guys, the Gibeonites are terrified. And like a desperate child trying to deceive their parent to stay home from school, they pull out all the shots to make it appear as though they had traveled a great distance to make it to the Israelites. They used worn sacks and wineskins. They wore tattered clothes and sandals that were falling apart. And all of the food that they brought with them was dry and crumbly. It wasn't like today where you see those funny memes about buying a bag of spring mix just to throw it away in a week. Food was scarce, and so you have to think about the fear and desperation that they must have felt to let it go bad. They were afraid of being destroyed by Israel. But if we look at the text a little closer, we see that they had a fear of the Lord. In verses 9 through 10, when they're pleading their case in front of Joshua, they say, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. Just sit in that for a second. The Gibeonites are literally standing in front of Joshua and all of the Israelites who are likely ready to kill them at a moment's notice. But instead of saying, yay, Joshua, we heard how powerful you are. We heard how strong you are. We heard how great you are. They're not flattering him. They're flattering the one who they know is really in charge here. And what does Joshua do in response to their request? Or better yet, what does he not do? He does not seek counsel from the Lord before making the covenant with them. The Gibeonites don't even know if their plan is going to work and may be killed. And yet they are acknowledging God, which contrasts greatly with Joshua, who fails to acknowledge God's counsel before entering that covenant. Joshua, who just read the law of the people 
at the end of chapter 8, before the story starts, that says, you will not make a covenant with them. You will not show them mercy, for they will turn your sons away from me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will destroy you quickly. But where we once saw deception and a disregard of the word of God leading to cursing in the garden of Genesis 3, here we see deception and a disregard for God's word leading to mercy. God does not destroy the Israelites for forming a covenant with people in Canaan. And Israel does not destroy the Gibeonites. The Israelites discover that the Gibeonites had tricked them. But because of the covenant with them, and that they had sworn to God, the Gibeonites were brought into the fold of God's people. Just take a second to really think about that. Typically, when we think of someone being saved, we think of repentance and confession. But in this case, it's deception and sin that led the Gibeonites into salvation. Did anyone tilt their head in confusion or feel angry that God welcomed them in? They seemed so unworthy of God's grace. But God saw a sliver of faith in them, and he is liberal with his mercy. Are we as eager to extend grace to others like that? I don't think I am. I find myself being critical and judging whether I feel someone is worthy to be saved. But I wasn't even saved until I was 23. So if you would have met me seven or eight years ago, you yourself may have been questioning whether I was worthy to be saved as I stumbled down the sidewalk drunk and was consumed with my own selfish ambitions. And six years ago, I feel like I was standing in the position of the Gibeonites, trying to sneak my way into God's kingdom. Sean and I became believers together, and it all started when he was carpooling with a coworker who happened to attend Bertas. And through some questioning and conversations, our friend Justin started sharing the biblical narrative with Sean back and forth on their 40-minute commute to Muscatine, which then led to him and his wife Kate inviting us into a weekly Bible study with them. So every Friday, instead of going to a bar, we would go to their house and have dinner, play games, and then read the Bible. I remember Sean coaching me in the car on the way there, like, Kate, these people, they follow God, so don't eat a single bite of food before they pray. Do not swear. And you cannot say, oh my God, in front of them. So just like the Gibeonites were trying to deceive, to get into God's kingdom, we were trying to fake our way in. But God saw a glimpse of faith in us and welcomed us in with with open arms. Guys, it doesn't matter what path you were on that led you to be saved. You are now a child of God. 
We saw God save the least of these in Rahab, and this week we see God see the worst of these in the Gibeonites. Then chapter 10 shows us the lengths God will go to protect his children. The five kings of the Amorites had heard how the Gibeonites made a covenant with Israel and teamed up to fight against them. But instead of fearing the Lord like the Gibeonites, they had feared losing their authority over Canaan. So when the fighting begins, the Gibeons are freaking out and they're like, hey, Israel, where are you? We need help. So this is when we find that answer to our question in our homework. Was God manipulated? God speaks to Joshua. And that's a big deal. So when God speaks, you listen. And he says, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Joshua and all the people of war head to Gibeon. And when they enter the battle, we see that not only does God cause panic among the Amorites, but he throws large stones from heaven on them. God is not being manipulated in this text. First of all, he's all-knowing, so if he really didn't want to save the Gibeonites, he could have just destroyed them right then and there before the covenant, before the covenant happened. But secondly, we read in verse 11 that more Canaanites were killed by the hailstones of heaven than from the swords of the people of Israel. Not because God had to fulfill his end of a covenant promise, but because the Gibeonites were now his children, and he was going to protect them. Think about how the Gibeonites must have felt during all of this. They are used to worshiping a God who demands that they throw their children into a pit of fire to appease him. But Yahweh fights for them and protects them as his own children. They must have been staring in complete awe. God was showing the Gibeonites his faithfulness to put them as part of the covenant. He performs a miracle and stops the sun to allow Israel more time to defeat the Amorites. The, Amor the Amorites and even the Gibeonites before they were saved worshipped the sun. So God was showing his authority over the sun, the sun that he created. Their God was powerless against him, the one true God. God was not simply tolerating these liars that snuck into his kingdom, but was revealing to them that God loves all of his children equally. Almost immediately after they were saved, they witness firsthand how God cares for his household. Guys, I feel like a Gibeonite. Who am I to be standing here right now? I feel like a fraud who just kind of stumbled into God's family. I've struggled openly with sharing my faith for fear that people who knew me before Christ would see me and just call me out as a phony. I, for Pete's sake, I have a secret Pinterest board titled 
how to live like a Christian woman that I made years ago, full of these random lists of godly attributes and really pretty Bible quotes that are probably taken out of context, and a really good chocolate chip cookie recipe. It's a pinch of yum if you're interested. But I didn't belong in God's kingdom like the Gibeonites, and he immediately swept me up and drew me closer and closer to him. Our friends, Kate and Justin, they moved to Nashville. And so Sean and I said, well, we better join a connection group because we need friends now. But God placed us in a group with incredibly strong leaders who discipled us and shepherded us and taught us how to truly live like Christians. So here's the point. As a child, God erases your past and then begins training you to conform you into the image of his son. I feel so fortunate for how much of Christ God has shown me in my short life so far as a Christian and for the opportunities he has given me to share Christ with others. It makes me so excited to think that if this is what God does immediately for his children— immediately. What is eternity with him going to look like? God not only removed the immediate danger from the lives of the Gibeonites, but he crushed the evil that pursued them. And he pointed to the one who would remove us all from the path of evil for eternity. After the Amorites are defeated, we learn the kings hide themselves behind a stone in a cave. Joshua orders that, he, that they be brought before him and invites all the men of Israel to gather around while the leaders place their feet on the king's necks. Joshua uses this moment to direct the people to the one who will ultimately crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis 3.15, when speaking to the serpent in the garden, after he convinced Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, you, yeah. <laughs> he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. All of Israel's, and therefore God's enemies, will be defeated. Evil cannot win. Because before Israel placed their feet on the necks of the Amorites, God promised us one who would crush the head of the serpent with his heel and end all evil. Can you see how Joshua is pointing us to the ultimate snake crusher, Jesus? who wouldn't win the battle over evil with a sword, but by giving himself over and suffering on a tree until death, who he himself would be placed in a cave behind a stone for three days and then rise again and secure our victory over death. Guys, when we become Christians, we share in Christ's death and resurrection. Romans 16.20 states, The God of peace 
will soon crush Satan under your feet. Christ did all the work, and we get to share in his victory. But just like the Israelites, we have to step into our identity as conquerors and believe in the power of God that lives in us. Joshua is reminding us that through Christ, we can place our feet on the neck of our enemy. Sin, lies that we believe, empty promises, the power that the enemy seems to have over us, and one day, Satan himself. The rest of chapter 10 and 11, continually using the Israelites to conquer the rest of Canaan, can be kind of tough to read. With all of the bloodshed, it's hard to see our good God causing bloodshed and hardening hearts of the Canaanites. But remember that he can also soften hearts and create new hearts, which we saw in Rahab and in the Gibeonites. And every person in this room who has chosen to put their faith in him We saw God perform a miracle by causing the sun to stop. But we need to remember that God performed the greatest miracle of our lives when he chose to save us. If we look deeper into this text, we can see how God forms the promised land and molds those whom he saves. God was shaping the promised land for his people, just as he had formed the world in the beginning in Genesis. We see Joshua, through God's providence, conquer and conquer and conquer. Now bear with me. Makeda, conquered. Libna, conquered. Gazar, conquered. Eglon, conquered. Hebron, conquered. Debir, conquered. Negev, conquered. Goshen, conquered. Hazar conquered, Madon conquered, Shimron conquered, Mizpah conquered, Avana conquered, Anakim conquered, and so many more. And then, once the whole land was taken and given to Israel, it says the land had rest from war. Ladies, after God steps in and saves us, and brings us into the fold of the covenant, we get to step into our identity fully and live as conquerors. The mark of a Christian life after God saves you is that he will conquer your sin again and again and again, and someday that will lead to eternal rest. Every single sin God can conquer in your life, all leading up to one day when there is no sin and only rest. What is the sin that you need God to conquer for you? Gossip, it's conquered. Pride, conquered. Lust, conquered. Anger, conquered. Anxiety, conquered. Porn, conquered. Security, conquered. Greed, conquered. There is no nation powerful enough that God cannot conquer, and there is no sin too big for God. No matter how many times 
you fall into the same sin pattern or how big you think your sin is, the Spirit of God dwells within you and He will fight for you and He will never lose. We as broken sinners not only get entered into the covenant, but like the Gibeonites, we get to enter into eternal rest. When I came into salvation, I had no idea how much God would fight for me over my sin. When I was seven months pregnant with our first baby, Sean came up to me and said, hey, I think I want to enroll in seminary because all the people that we hung, up, hung out with had been following Christ for a lot longer than us. And so he thought it was kind of the fast-track way to learn as much about God as fast as he could. So I said, okay, go for it. But this longing of his to learn more about God quickly turned into a desire to pursue ministry as a career. And I put a hard stop on that because that was not in Mama's plan. <laughs> I was fueled by sins of anxiety and greed and this false sense of security that I felt with his stable job as an engineer. But God waged war on the, against the sin in my heart. And I felt like every message that I heard preached, every song that I heard was God just calling me to follow him. We even studied Jonah. And I sobbed as I listened to teachings of Jonah running from God because that's how I felt. My heart slowly was starting to soften up to the idea and then I would have this fear just lurking and whispering in my ears. And so I would, just as I would go up and be like, I'm going to tell Sean today's the day I agree, I would hear these whispers and I'd be like, no, I'm not. Then right before Isla's first birthday, uh, we were approached, or he had applied for a scholarship for school that would help pay for it, obviously. And the only caveat to that was that you had to be enrolled in two classes. And he had only ever taken one class at a time because he worked full time. And then we had had our first baby and I was pregnant again. <clears throat> so after considering it for a while, we decided it's not a good idea for us, for him to apply for that scholarship. And then we were approached by uh, someone who knew that Sean was taking classes but had no idea that this had happened with the scholarship. <clears throat> and they pulled us aside and said that they'd been praying for us and felt called to support Sean in his schooling. And they gifted us a check that was the exact same amount as the scholarship that we turned down. And that was the moment that my heart completely softened and I told Sean, I'm all in, no matter what. Not only had God shown me in that moment that he would protect, protect and provide for our family as his children, but he had conquered my sin in that moment. I've had moments of fear and honestly anger at times since then um, about my plans changing, where they start to creep back in, but God has continued to crush them and draw me closer to him. Here we are, two years since that scholarship moment happened, 
And God has provided this unique opportunity where Sean's still working full-time and now is working part-time in children's ministry. And the girl who was against ministry is standing here. (laughs) So just like the Gibeonites, your broken road to God, or your broken road, God will still use to bring you to salvation. He has performed a miracle to transform your heart, and he has crushed the serpent and risen from the dead to prove that you are part of the household of faith and can be sure of that. Guys, I'm speaking from experience tonight. God can and will work miracles in your lives to conquer the sin that plagues you. Can you picture what life would look like without anxiety or pride, without your fear, without your sense of unworthiness, without your addiction or whatever sin it was that you walked in those doors with tonight? That life of freedom is possible because you can be a child of God. And the only prerequisite is putting your faith in Jesus. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Take a deep breath of relief and find rest in the knowledge that because of God's immeasurable grace, because of Christ's death and resurrection, and because the Spirit of God is living in us, we, in a sense being phony Gibeonites ourselves, can be more than conquerors. Are you ready to open up to God in vulnerability and prayer and ask him to conquer your sin? Because freedom awaits you on the other side. Let's pray. God, we thank you for how freely you extend your grace to us and how far you pull us into your family once we put our faith in you. We praise you for being a loving God who protects us and conquers our sin. And we pray that you help us to step fully into our identity as conquerors through your son, Jesus, as we await eternal rest with you. Amen.